Welcome back to the Creator Club podcast. You're here with John Marsh. And if you're a coach or creative business owner, this is your show to learn the key skills to attract dream clients, grow your business, and build confidence. Today on the show, we've got a deep dive conversation with Michael Clark. Michael is an architect at Michael Clark Architects, and he's based uh, on the South Coast, New South Wales. And in the conversation, we talk about Michael's upbringing, uh, his early interest in creativity and comic books and art and design, how this led into architecture. Michael did a lot of great work with a lot of leading and prestigious architecture firms uh, in Australia. And then how he went about branching out and sort of creating his own practice. Uh, Michael talks us through some of the challenges he went through, how he overcame them. And, you know, doesn't really matter what business you're in. There's a lot of really, really great uh, lessons in here around relationship building, around marketing, uh, around those formative or earlier periods in whatever business that you're running as well. So there's a wealth of insights. Let's jump into the show. This is John Marsh. You're listening to the Creative Club podcast. And today we're talking with Michael Clark. My mum was single, my dad had left, and we lived in a um, small house in South Coogee that didn't have a great relationship with the outside, didn't have a lot of natural light, and we weren't outdoor people. And mum didn't have a contingent of friends, a community or anything. I didn't regularly go to, you know, surf club or nippers or some sort of sporting event to meet, blah, blah, blah. So it was me and mum, or mum and me. And I loved Saturday morning cartoons, like... TV. TV, yeah. next level. And back then, you couldn't really binge. Yeah, you know, yeah. You signed yourself up. You, you lined your yourself up for that 7.30 episode of Transformers. Yeah. And that's all you got. Yeah. And if you missed it, you missed it. You could tape it and rewatch it, but you couldn't just watch the next one and keep streaming. And, you know, Transformers is one. Of course, there's all the others. 80s was a great time to be a kid in terms of the content that was coming out there. You know, some ridiculous stuff, but it still interested me from Voltron to Astro Boy to He-Man or whatever. And I, um, I, I loved it so much. And we were inside and mum was an inside person. We didn't go out a lot. And I just wanted to relive those experiences, those stories mm. in whatever way I could. Now, buying product, toys or whatever was one way and I loved it and I loved dissecting them and I said, is there more I can do to understand these characters, these stories, whatever. And mum wanted to, weird thing, she was a teacher and she wanted to open a stationery shop. Mm -hmm. Bizarre, she tells me this later. So there was tools everywhere, paper, pens, textures, pencils. And it was just almost obvious that that was something that was going to happen. I got upset the episode had finished I wanted to relive it or imagine what could have happened or a variation that could have gone from that story. So I drew it Yeah. and I drew my toys and I just drew and drew and drew to the point where, you know, we'd go shopping, mum would go out with me to get groceries or whatever. I'd convince her to buy me a small toy. We'd sit down and have lunch or whatever. Yeah. And part of that process was not just playing with the toy and saying, you know, I've got the value out of this. I've got the entertainment out of this. I wanted to, I wanted more. So there with mum eating, sometimes with a friend, sometimes not, I would find a napkin, piece of paper, anything. And I just draw, keep yeah. drawing, keep reliving, keep reimagining. And um, 
the toys and the cartoons was one aspect of it. But then, you know, comics weren't as huge in Australia in the early 80s. So you might go into a shop and you might see one buried amongst other magazines. But they were certainly there. And sort of superhero comic-related content or product wasn't as available in toy Mm. stores as like Transformers and some other stuff. But I remember we moved to Malabar, eastern suburb Sydney, and I went into a news agency like the first week we'd um, moved. And by that stage, I was maybe nine or ten, and it was just a huge wall of comics, you know, just everywhere. And I just was frothing to use a crude expression and thinking to myself, I don't have any money. Yeah. What can I do to say to mum, can I please buy all these? And it wasn't a huge investment. Like back then they were barely a dollar each. Yeah. But it was the concept of, you know, give too much to a child and what might happen. Anyway, I managed to work up and do chores or whatever and she'd buy them all for me and you'd keep going back into the shop a month later or a week later. Have they got any new ones? Have they got any new ones? And it was a huge display compared to what you now see. Was it a comic? It wasn't a comic shop. No, it was, it was just a news, news agency. agency. It was back when they had them in news agencies. But somebody just loved them and stocked them up. Yeah. Yeah. It looked like it would today be a comic shot, the yeah. amount of content. You go into that same news agency today and it feels tragic by comparison. Yeah. In the context of looking for comics. Um, and that's because comics have moved to more comic shops. But I'd got them and, again, I just wanted to relive those stories. I wanted to relive those imaginings. And I did it the wrong way around, like a classically trained artist might say, that the best thing you should do to become a great pencil artist is to draw from real life. I didn't want to draw from real life. That didn't excite me as much drawing my mum as much yeah, as I loved you, her. normal humans versus superhumans. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and so I just wanted to emulate these fantastic artists that were there in the 80s. Um, but if you want to draw as good as just name dropping here, Todd McFarlane or Jim Lee or uh, John Byrne or Eric Larson or any of these fantastic, um, mm. or, or Jack Kirby, who was mm. originally the, the, the person who started this trend to big gestures and instead of small cells that we had in comics originally suddenly you've got double spreads it's like wow check out that double spread in terms of gesture i wanted to draw like them and so i copied them yeah you know i i had it in front of me and i tried to emulate it was it was a glorified or it was a really intense precedent study in a way but in the end it meant that my classical training was you know maybe a little bit off and by the time when I did start to, at university and, and the like, want to really say, look how good I am, compared to some people that were more classically trained, there was a slight shortfall. But my passion, my excitement, my, how much I loved it kind of transcended those shortfalls and I could say, okay, what's the detail missing? What's the understanding that I didn't quite get from drawing um, exactly or trying to draw exactly like those other guys and how can I fill in the gaps? And that was my pursuit later. And just to finish off that process before I actually got to architecture, so I had an interest in superheroes. I had an interest in robots and sci-fi and reimagining those stories. Mm. And that was attention to detail on wanting to relive an experience. And then when I became an outdoor person, you know, we moved out of that house and mum remarried and I became a bit of a coastal kid, loved surfing. I always loved water. And at some point in my teenage years, I said, you know, static water doesn't quite do it for me anymore. What's, what's yeah. the ocean like? Maroubra. Maroubra. Yeah. I lived there for f- five years. Right. Great beach. Sydney's best, I would say. Absolutely. Yeah. Most Cons- consistent. Most consistent. You know, not often epic. Yeah. But consistent. consistent. Yeah. 
And so on the weekend, nine out of 10 times, you're going to go down and find a wave. Yeah. And the community I developed there right up to my adult life, I just loved it. But mum, you know, the beauty of hindsight, she didn't really like me surfing during the week. She wanted me to come home and do my homework. And some of my friends after school, especially in summer, would go and surf. So again, it's a little bit of your environment and restrictions and limits. You know, limits can create some opportunity. I wanted more surfing. I wanted more of that experience. So I, you know, drowned myself, that's a bad pun, (laughs) in um, magazines and videos, but also drawing waves. I was constantly drawing waves. For some reason, always left-handers. And interestingly, I prefer left-handers, but always left-handers, always offshore, always real... Like barreling. Barreling with the rock exposed and like someone doing a move on it or not. Just I'd be in a class and you're a teenager and you're not particularly into the subject. And so there I am. This is where I'd rather be. And I'd be one of those kids that had finished an exam possibly too fast. Mm-hmm. I got better at exams, but, you know, I thought, oh, I've done this exam. There's not much more I can do. What am I going to do now? Draw a picture of surfing. I was one of those kids that drew on the back of um, exams. And a funny story, I actually drew a picture of me sitting an exam, drawing a photo. On, yeah, drawing me drawing and me imagining surfing. And then my teacher, who was actually had a good sense of humor looking at me in anger with like a lightning bolt above or something and i actually noticed when i got the exam back i actually did well and he was a great teacher he actually commented on it and he said nah it's the other way around <laughs> he's the one in class thinking of this <laughs> yep. um but i think my drawing was a love of drawing but it also more was a love of just getting more of a subject getting more into a subject reliving a moment and experience a story and as a kid that's how i did it Mm -hmm. and then what did you i want to pick back up on the comic side what then tipped you into architecture was that like the most logical no 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 because the other side of my drawing experience and really loving the imagination and storytelling of that was to relive them and i did that through drawing but I also did that through playing with my toys and imagining them as like props for a storyboard or something. Like I'd put them on my chest and imagine different dynamics and angles. That was like perspective or composition study. But sometimes that wasn't enough. So I also wanted to relive them through as if I was doing some performance, you know. I didn't like the story from that morning. So I wanted to correct it and I wanted to relive it as if I was all the characters. Mm-hmm. So I'd go into my grandmother's bedroom and I'd be, <clears throat> I'd be Spider-Man or a Transformer or whatever, and I'd throw myself around the room and say, oh, no, and I'd be the villain, I'd be the goody, I'd be whatever, and I love that. And I think for whatever reason, because I love that and I love being dramatic and remembering lines, I was always more geared towards acting. Mm. I always wanted to be an actor. And my art teacher, <laughs> I remember in year 11 or 12, she was a fantastic art teacher, um, in terms of focus and understanding things, which is a teenager you need, she could have probably picked a little bit more up on technique. But I remember I said, oh, Miss, I want to be an, an actor. She said, all oh, right. I, wa- I was looking into interior architecture at one point. She said this. And I was like, oh, it's my art teacher. I better listen. And I said, oh, okay, so maybe if acting doesn't happen, and it was never going to happen, I should consider this alternative. Yeah. So I'll just humor her. And go to um, the open day at the University of New South Wales. Because 
I don't know about anyone listening or about you, but I think there's a there's a little bit of a myth about architecture that it's it's technical drawing, it's dry, it's rigid, it's specific. There's not an element of free flow or creativity or you know an architect doing a painting someone would think no that's not architecture or an yeah. architect doing a sculptor yeah. sculpture or a movie or writing a song about their space it's not architecture yeah and that's certainly what i believed i mean my base point for architecture as a teenager was this terrible show i don't know if it was on in um New Zealand, because you grew up in New Zealand, yeah? Yeah, yeah and then yeah. I went to UNSW as well. All oh, right. There was yeah. a terrible show in the 80s called Hey Dad. It's really mm, bad. Know. Terrible. Yeah. And the main actor is in some, uh, he's in a bit of hot water, but he was at a drafting table in a bedroom or uh-huh. a room in his house, and he was kind of a dag. He was often the dad that they picked on, and he had a really sort of strange receptionist. And he just looked like he was always at the drawing board, talking to his receptionist, drawing board receptionist, and that was the sum total of what I thought an architect did. At a drawing board, maybe a receptionist, fine pen in hand, rigid, doesn't sound like something who loves someone, sorry, who loves sci-fi and comics yeah. and superheroes and Jack Kirby would really resonate with. Yeah. And I went to the open day at UNSW and I walked into this room that displayed the work of the interior architecture. I think it was all years. And... My my predisposition or my original understanding was just wrong. There was a lot of strange sculptural studies of space and form and void and some of them were covered in gesso paint and clay and it was just rich and raw and diverse mm. and just my world of imagination, storytelling, different ways of thinking about things, just like, wow, this is interesting. And I had a chat to the... Um, uh, one of the guys that rang the course who also ran a subject in thir- first year and I liked what he said anyway I put it as my first priority and I went in and I think I always went in with a little bit of incredulity like let's just see how this goes yeah. and I think slowly but surely in first year this just seemed to really really fit I mean just to wrap up this story one of the first things we had to do in first year was um in architectural theory, we had to do a comic strip. Like, oh, cool. I could almost stop there, yeah, right? Yeah. Okay, I should do architecture. We had to do a comic strip. Uh, it was 1997 and Romeo and Juliet came out. Baz Luhrmann's Romeo yeah. and Juliet came out. And we had to do a comic strip imagining or replacing the human actors with inanimate objects. Yeah. And then do a comic strip from the scene of the movie showing those inanimate act, um, objects. Um, acting out a part of the movie and and I, I loved the activity some people that had come to architecture thinking it was just all what I'd previously thought it was like they'd had a drafting background they'd done really well in engineering science or something they were there going what does this have to do with architecture and I was a bit like not sure what it has to do with architecture but I'd love to find out yeah my comic was a bit lame my technique was a bit lame my drawings were a bit lame because I had that imagination excitement that you know, I had the passion, but I hadn't learned the technique. And I think that's a shortfall of school. I think that, and I forgot to say this, at school I loved drawing, but it was something I could do when I'd done what I'd had to do. Mm-hmm. So if I'd finished my maths, Michael, you can have some free time, do some drawing. Mm-hmm. What if I want to do my maths via doing a drawing? And I think that's a bit of a shortfall in the system. It was always like, well done, Michael, you now can draw. Yeah. Like it was... And I, yeah, it wasn't something that was developed and harnessed and that teachers, particularly in primary school, 
even in the junior years of high school said, Michael, let's learn about classically drawing people. Let's learn about center line. Let's learn about human anatomy. That didn't happen till university. Yeah. And so as a consequence, I'd look at these people that had studied things more classically that did these unbelievable comics. They look like a disciple of Jim Lee or John Byrne or whatever. I was like, wow, this guy's in the same year as me. Yeah. He hasn't been working at Marvel for 20 years. But I still loved it. And some of my ideas as well, like Romeo, oh, what should Romeo be? He should be a bow tie. Everyone picked Romeo as a bow tie because it's this elegant, almost romantic thing for a man to wear a bow tie. So I didn't really pick up enough on the creative opportunity and critical way of thinking uh, left field that could have been offered from the activity. But nonetheless, it cemented, it confirmed the decision Mm. to do architecture because it had this... um, almost to say it was seamless transition from the interest I had as a kid to that point is a lie, but it almost just seemed Effects. to naturally yeah. make sense. Yeah. Okay. And so <clears throat> then you went straight to Zanus? No, or, no, no, no. Uh, uh, yeah. So I finished architecture, six year degree. And then, um, I when was, did you, what year did you finish roughly? Um, that might be giving away my age, and I'm happy to do. That. Well, you said you 2002, said 2002, 97 on Romeo and Juliet, I think. Yeah, yeah. So 2002 was my last year of study. Okay, I would have had an overlap year then with you at UNSW. Oh wow! By I think 2001, 2001 engineering. Yeah, and two, 2001, 2002. Did you love it? Did you love campus? I loved um, the degree and what I studied aerospace. I love fluid dynamics. Just just made total sense to me um but they didn't give us well i'm blaming the system here but i really had no idea what an engineer was going to do and i did my thesis on surfboard fin design and stuff like that when i got out into industry different situation you know i was just sitting behind excel spreadsheets but yeah campus was good um i loved it yeah to me it was almost I, i didn't do particularly well at school up to around year 10 because I was a bit of a class clown disruptive. I wanted to be an actor. I wanted to be a comedian or something. Yeah. And I loved, I loved when, and I think some teachers also liked it when you sort of said, oh, that sounds a bit silly. Or you made it crack yeah. and they tried hard not to laugh, but it still disrupts the flow of what's ultimately supposed to happen, which is not a, you know, comedic 40 minutes, supposed to be an educational period. But I, I was a bit of a class clown up to year 10 and I got, an okay school certificate before mum said, I th- think you can do a lot better. Yeah. And I was like, oh, wow. You know, I really respected mum. She was one of my biggest influences. And uh, yeah. So I took that very seriously. And interestingly, a beacon that was almost this reference point to say, Michael, achieve, work hard, was that we lived in Malabar and along Anzac Parade on the way to the school I went to, you could see the UNSW library. Yeah. And it's an awful building, but it's a totem. It's like yeah, yeah, this, yeah. I want to get there. Yeah. I want to get to that campus. And I did. And I loved campus life. Incidentally, at university, I was in a couple of plays. So even at university, I was out to semi-live my desire for acting. But um, yeah, to answer your question, six years uni, uh, the first year I worked for a company uh, that's now called TKD. They were called Tanner Architects in Surrey Hills, did a lot of educational uh-huh. Uh, institutional projects and heritage projects and I, I worked there a lot of the places I worked for I didn't actually seek the work out the work seeked me out I was very fortunate in that sense um, and that was part of my passion and love for what I did that mm-hmm. happened to help me just 
carry, catch people's attention. Um, and I did, and a tutor that I worked with said, here's my business card if you want a job, and I got a job. And I worked there for a year in, fi- in fourth year and then a year after graduating, and something incredible happened. We worked on a collaboration with an Italian company um, in, based in Rome on uh, Bondi Icebergs dining room and bar, so the top level of Bondi Icebergs, um, very uh, high-end uh, restaurant fit-out. And I developed a relationship with that um, Italian architectural firm who also wanted to do more Sydney work and uh-huh. it was in their best interest, both companies' best interest, to say, hey, do you want Michael for a few months? And so I worked in Rome for a few months. Wow. And wow, that was uh, interesting, culturally interesting to experience um, working in Rome, to experience working as an architect in Rome um, and what was not ideal is to be working as a non-Italian speaking architect in Rome and ultimately that led to me returning because I couldn't work in a company that didn't have a lot of people that could speak English. Yeah. But after, um, after that I came back and one of my tutors who taught me, who I really looked up to and still do, he's a, he's a colleague and, and, and great mentor and friend, he said there was a position going at Zanez and Zanez um, really interested me. And for those that don't know, Zanez, yeah, have sent a really high benchmark or precedent uh, point of excellence for quality architecture in Sydney. You know, mm-hmm. they've won a lot of awards. The founding director of Zanez, Alex Zanez, he won the gold medal, which is the highest achievement in architecture. I think it was in 2019. And to just show how... Um, good a company is i suppose um when that magazine when a magazine came out talking about alex gold medal it had a list of all the people that had worked there and i appreciated some of these people having worked there but not all of them and it's really a who's who of critically acclaimed new south wales sydney architects like it seems like almost sweeping statement almost anyone who's anyone used to work at zanis interesting and left to go on to do something special yeah so i worked there and i thought i'd be there forever i just really liked it it really um resonated with the way that i liked to practice architecture and what i needed to learn and know and i wanted yeah i wanted to be at the top ultimately i thought it'd be great to um, be a director and associate um so that was a year and a half after graduating i worked at zanes for nine years just okay, over nine yeah, years big chunk of time and so you met ruby at that stage yep cool About third or fourth year in ruby yeah came. yeah yeah oh great well so okay and then then you obviously right now you run your own shop so to speak what was that like coming out of like a, a well-oiled machine with high caliber high status into um, I'm going to go set up my own thing. Like that would have been kind of scary, wouldn't it? Oh, yeah. 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 Um, but in terms of fear, like like you surf, right? There's some scary waves out there. There's some scary conditions. But um, sometimes the adrenaline is healthy mm. to keep you on your toes, mm. to make sure you keep breathing, to make sure you keep the right focus. You know, if you paddle out to terrible, crazy, wild surf, numb to fear, you're going to probably have a problem. Mm. Um, 
And that's true for any walks of life. So true for this one as well. And I had a lot of fear going into my own practice. I mean, you talk about imposter syndrome. I heard that on another podcast. I, I think I had a little bit of imposter syndrome when I left Zanes because I thought, I think the universe is telling me something. I've learned a lot here. I've learned a lot about how to get projects realized and I can realize projects myself. But I had a little bit of imposter syndrome or a little bit of fear in regards to something that we didn't get a lot of exposure to at Zanes, which was first principle ideas. The directors would work up the okay. initial concept. Yeah, and, and hand then, it to you. And find someone who's available to develop it um, and work on it day to day. And so whenever I sat down, uh, I did do one private job at Zanes and I sat down to think about okay, let's work up a concept. And almost instinctively, almost robotically, I said, I've got to show this to the superior. I've got to show this to my boss. Mm. And I went, oh, actually, no, I don't. And that was really liberating, <laughs> but scary because the only one I had to report to was the client. Mm-hmm. But I had to work through that fear. And I thought to myself on an imposter syndrome level, have I actually had enough exposure to first principle concepts to go out and say, I'm going to do my own thing. So I worked for another company for a short time um, and then, I, so I got made redundant at Zanes. I took a voluntary redundancy at Zanes. It was the middle of the GFC and I was one of the last crew to go. Everything moves in cycles and it was a big kick to the confidence, um, but it happened. Yeah. Then I worked somewhere else for a year and a half and another redundancy. And I then, remember that period. Yeah. I was then in, in a building, <coughs> building engineering then and it was happening everywhere. Massive downsizes. Yeah. But um, I got made redundant at another company when I had a senior role much quicker than Zana's and it was almost like, and my son was supposed to be born that same week I got made redundant and I was like, whoa. And I think the fear, I think at the other company I had more exposure to first principle design. Mm -hmm. So that confidence had developed and I said, I can do this. I can work on something from the beginning and deliver the whole thing. So I had the confidence. I had no leads. I had no work. Um... And my son had just been born. And so the pressure well, was about to be born. And so I think I was under a bit of pressure to make sure that I could deliver to a family. And that wasn't the right time to make that bold move. And I got set up with a company that does a lot of hospitality projects, food and beverage, uh, restaurants, bars, etc. cetera. And um, that, was, that was great. I became an associate there and I thought I'd really climb the ladder. They were actually going to seek me out after Zanes did a few private jobs on the side. I'd now decided, and I'd say this to everyone, to try and have a bit of a plan B with whatever it is you're doing. And it doesn't have to be, um, if there's a global financial crisis, I'm going to do this. It doesn't have to be, if I get kicked out of this job, what am I going to do? It's more like some of the stuff that Ruby and you talk about, like network. Uh, If you know that there's someone who's teaching, reach out to them. How's it going? Do you want to meet up? Like, I think you guys are really good at reminding us that marketing is not a dirty word. Networking Mm. is not a dirty word. Mm. It's not go to some gathering or corporate function and trade business cards. Yeah, and trying to scrape for yourself kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, And so I've had success stories, and this is my diversification strategy, just by meeting people. And they say, what do you do? And I say, I'm an architect. What are you working on? And I talk about it with energy and interest and flair and... And I like to do, and that's not forced. It's just 
how I am. And that's meant that I've maintained some great connections, which have allowed me to always land on my feet. Yeah. Then I got made redundant a third time. And I was working on three private jobs at that office. Two went to ground. The owners sold the project, so I didn't take them further than council application. One project I thought was going to go further, but they got approval and then moved to uh, the mid-coast uh, old bar near Foster. Yeah. Um, but they really were happy with what I contributed. And I thought, this someone's telling me something here. Like these are all incredible companies that would not have been happy to lose me. It wasn't necessarily their choice, but you've got to pay the bills. And I'd say everyone out there, this is one of my semi-lessons learned. You know, the, the clarity that you can sometimes get or that I've often got anyway when you're not in the nine-to-five push, the inertia. Like you must have got clarity at some point about engineering and I'd love to hear that story. But I often found at the end of the year, the year had finished, you know, John Lennon, another year over, a new one begun, this is Christmas, what have you done? Oh, what have I done? You know, let's just think through what have I done? Because no one's chasing me, no one's calling me, I'm not checking an email, I'm not sitting at my desk, I'm sitting on a beach, I'm surfing, i am just got this expansiveness, the blinkers are off. And I'd often ask myself this question, did I love the year that just was? Did I love what I contributed? Or was the fear of failure the concern of doing a bad job so great that it pushed me further and I was like, got to do well, going to do well. Okay, let's think about this. Let's solve this problem. Mm. But if someone said to me during that time, Michael, there's no issue here. There's, it's not going to be a problem. We're not going to get sued. There's not going to be an issue. It's all going to be perfect. Big safety net. Big safety net. Yep. Huge. Michael, this is the biggest safety net in the world. I just want you to think about that and then just enjoy. Mm. Did I actually enjoy it? Mm. Or was it an adrenaline rush? Yeah, I think about that as like a. Um, the last couple of years, I've been thinking about that as a kind of a reframe of paranoia. <laughs> and it's like, if you're not living in paranoia, like we, you know, obviously there's before people jump down my throat, like within healthy realms and you don't always, you want to be lying awake every night. But yeah, back against the wall, Sun Tzu called it uh, death ground. Back against the wall, nowhere to go. You're paranoid. Amazing things start to happen quickly, huh? Yeah. <laughs> and so when I had that space of clarity and I had that quite profoundly in the final year before I got made redundant at the other company, the next first week of work, I got made redundant. Mm. So you put that energy out there, what happens? And, you know, I'm, I'm not going to say I'm a, I'm a religious person. I think I'm quite spiritual. I believe that there's an intangible things that happen and you can't assign science or anything to them necessarily but they happen and there's a lot to be said about what you put out there can sometimes come back so i just put out there this thought like yeah i'm gonna start to have a think about doing more private work got made redundant and i said this is the time and i was really scared i had no leads i had some redundancy to give me some financial security what, do you mind if i ask like six months did you have up your sleeve like in terms probably, of okay probably because it's always the question right like people sitting there and they don't know not that that's the perfect amount of time or anything but it's it's good to know but i thought if i say to myself six months and that six months come what what do i do then totally go and work at kmart or yeah. something like i i, I didn't want to put my feet up because i'm not you that moved kind instantly of, even though you had six yeah. months yeah and even the first time i got made redundant at zanis i thought oh great i can 
again, I would have had six months um, comfort zone, if you like. Um, the first surf I went for that period when I was redundant, I surfed Shark Island at Cronulla and my wedding ring ripped off. And I was like, oh, my, well, my, wedding, ring, my wedding ring ripped off. I'm unemployed. I started to have these terror, like I just went on this downward cycle. Mm. I'm an unemployed bum. Mm. What purpose and role what am I contributing to society? And that freaked me out. Less so the third time around because I was a little bit more used to it, unfortunately. But as it were, someone I knew for a long time reached out and said, hey, do you want to come work for us for two weeks? And my mind was like, no, I'm set on this trajectory of doing my own thing. I, I think people would say if they knew me, I'd always been a leader in those roles. And I loved it. And I loved having a team. But I always was focused on how do we get from A to B, not just spin the wheels and chase our tail. I always said, how do we get out of this rut? And even if you're the only person that's working in your company, you need to be a leader. Mm. You know, leadership is key, even if you're not leading anyone other than the project. And so I knew I had that skill set and I had that interest and I had that um, passion. But I had no leads. And I was, you know, a little bit scared. And the amount of people I would call, I talked to my wife a lot. I talked to my mum a lot. What should I do? I'm not sure. Like, you know, the doubt that ran through. And there's a lot of naysayers. And I think everyone that goes into their own business, they're going to find people that have made a different decision. You know, work for someone, provide for your family. Mm-hmm. You know, I used to speak to some people like, oh, I'm going to do my own thing, but I'm quite nervous about it. And someone said, well, that's why hardly anyone does it. And that almost triggered me like, what do you mean? Mm. I, I can do this. Let's, let's give this a go. What's, you know, I, I, I just, I think three times, three strikes, something's telling me. And I just put my head down and I put a lot of energy out there. I told a lot of friends and colleagues at the time, there was a lot of work on, still is a lot of work on and a very good friend, two very good friends, actually three very good friends. One very good friend had too much work on and very tiny, two tiny projects, three tiny projects actually, she passed on to me. And I think there's something to be said in, it doesn't matter how big the project is, if you approach it with tenacity, use some of your terms I've heard on podcast, integrity, actually deliver on what you promise, mm. it will carry forward regardless of the size. And a lot of people know, a lot of people in Sydney, word of mouth, you know. Um, oh yeah, yeah, it's, it comes back. Mm. Yeah, in the, in the smallest of ways too, isn't it? Yeah. And I just said, I'm going to work for this person who offered me a position for three days, no more. And I thought two weeks. And on the two remaining days, I'm just going to put tremendous energy into my business. And so I did things like, um, you probably have a better term for it, but we, we called it like a semi-portfolio capability document. Getting all my previous projects in private practice or otherwise putting them in a little InDesign file, um, having snapshot points about what was related to that. Yeah. And that's, it's almost like a, a working website. It's content. And I would, anyone who's half interested, just send it out, send it out, send it out, send it out. And it didn't take long, like three, four months into that year before stuff was coming back. And through very, very limited marketing, but a lot of networking, mm-hmm. Um, some real interesting leads came in and of course that company who I was working with in parallel so I was doing three days at that company for all of 2018 
uh, they wanted more of me because they liked what I was doing. And I was like, this is another version of what I've done before. Mm -hmm. Work for someone. As much as they liked me and as great as the opportunities they were giving me were, and they were fantastic opportunities, I said, nah, I'm on this trajectory. I have this interest. I'm going to make it work despite the amount of people that were incredulous. You know, I had some real close family friends say, "Mm, I think that's a bit risky. I think you should play it safe. Mm. And I was like, let's think of those superhero (laughs) stories from everyone. Like they take risks daily. And that sounds a bit maybe of a cheesy connection. But I think there was something drummed into me through all of those years of watching those things. It's like, let's go on this this path. And yeah, it didn't take long. 2018, back end of 2018, I still had those small projects that I put tremendous energy into. None of them actually went very further than like authority approval. One of them, I'd replaced some windows in a house that I was going to do a lot more work to. And then suddenly 2019, um, actually, that's not true. I did a cosmetic surgeon's fit out, which was a real project and, you know, quite an experience, you know, first project under my name that got built. Yeah. And that was pretty special. Oh, huge, huge, because you've got that. I can imagine it's it's like um, that portfolio now has shifted. So it's not just under the name of Zanus or whatever else. Now you've got your own stamp. Yeah. Yeah. And that was testament to the fact that what I originally thought I can do this, you know, the imposter syndrome that I might have had when I left Zanes had gone. Mm-hmm. The only imposter, and it's not even imposter syndrome, the only sort of element of fear I had is cash flow marketing structure insurance or insurance i was pretty well first on but anyway those things fall into play and you just say to yourself even though it's not something natural for me to ask individuals for money because for almost 20 years people just paid me every fortnight Mm. I i figured it out and you worked it out you're providing a service that service comes with an expectation to remuneration um and or is it remuneration um, anyway, you, you expect to get paid because that's part of your agreement. I provide, they pay. Um, and I got used to that. And in 20, 2019, I had three, let's call them by comparison, much more substantial clients approach me. Um, one of whom was a, uh, an ex-client from Zanes who I had such a strong rapport with. I, I was a project architect for their house at Glebe. I had such a strong rapport with them over the years. They came to my wedding, mm. which was after their house finished. I'd mined the house that I designed. Mm. I'd minded their house on a few occasions. Very special thing to be in a house that you've designed. And they rang me up and said they have another property at Bondi. Uh, would I be interested in doing the design for it? And, you know, it's, would I be interested? Let me think. Yes. you know. <laughs> cool. <laughs> and then another person approached me, and this is a fantastic story that would speak volumes to your ideas uh, that you're promoting Creator Club about content. And I think I heard this on someone you were talking to the other day about um, social media stuff, like get stuff out there and don't be afraid that that stuff is not refined or not 100% about your offer. It could be about who you are. And so I, historically, prior to getting more involved in my own practice, put a lot of shots of me surfing because I was in that network, that community. On what platform? On Instagram. Okay. You know. Yeah. Here I am at Mystics. Here I am at Aussie Pipe. Here I am in Indonesia. Anyway, this person who lived near me in Malabar um, did a, a, 
a search on the Board of Australian Architects to see local architects in that area. I came up as one. He searched for me on Instagram, saw I was a surfer. He's a surfer himself, said, I like the idea of a local person who surfs my, lo- surfs my local break being the guy that talks to us about our design. Mm. You know, what a, what a win. <laughs> Resonance. Yeah, I love it. Okay, so take us to now. Like, what are you, what are you, that's, that was three years ago, 2019. What's evolved and what is your world, like, what do you do? What do you, what does it look like? How do you work with people? Um, I think one thing just to appreciate, um, that some people may know, may not know, um, is that your back's really against the wall as an architect, as a homeowner, as anyone who wants to develop a project. There's so many, Um, competing factors and I don't want to say hardships because that sounds really wrong but they're tight margins tight things you've got to go through to overcome to get to that great end result it's pretty hard in this state particularly in greater western Sydney to get a project approved by council depending on the area I'll talk about the approval process a little bit in a second on budget and then to find a builder that is okay to work with the design intent that you've worked up with your clients and your architects. Um, And my journey, the success story of me to date is despite being, who's Michael Clark, other than I used to work for Zanes, going from doing uh, a bathroom, a stair, a window, I'm now at a point where there's a project in uh, Bondi that's going to be finished in around late May, June, built with a a uh, very critically acclaimed, sought-after builder, Kin Constructions, whom I've known for years as another incarnation. And they were really excited to work on the project. They said great things about the experience. I've had a great experience working on it. It's with that repeat client. Mm-hmm. And so um, the exciting thing to say is that that project, you know, it had a tough time in council. It had um, – I had to find a builder – that could do it properly that came with an expense but despite all that we've come out the other end and there's going to be this project that's finished a, an actual house on hall street in bondi beach and when that's finished the content that i'll have oh yeah is phenomenal phenomenal so you do you do like proper shoots and stuff yeah yeah videos, yeah know. and i think the real achievement thing to discuss is despite initial reservations and fear and concern and potential imposter syndrome i've come out the other end just because i've maintained focus integrity and as much energy as i can muster whilst doing things sometimes on the side to a point where i think people believe in me or i instill that kind of level of confidence i like to instill that level of confidence and so that's a huge milestone for me when that project is finished when what's the time frame on that yeah, so that's the other thing talking about back against the wall and for people out there to understand, it takes a while yeah. to get a project from initial idea with architect to open the front door. I wish it weren't like that. Sometimes longer than you expect, huh? Yeah, I think most people out there, for whatever reason, and I'm going to talk about future projects. This is one of my future projects I want to look into. There's a public perception that development doesn't take very long. You know, an architect just draws it. How long does it take to do a drawing? Well, we're not just doing lines. Those lines represent an idea and sometimes that idea doesn't work as well and we've got to refine it and whatever. So the idea development takes 
a little bit of time, um, but council approval takes quite a while mm. depending on the area, depending on the council and depending on the extent of your compliance. And as an architect who likes to see each site as unique, as an opportunity, as not the same as the next door, the next suburb, the next city, mm. I, I, I never... I don't think I've ever lodged something that's fully ticked every single compliance box. There's some nuance that I say in this circumstance for this site, that doesn't make sense. Like a case in point, one project I'm working on that's really exciting is a semi-detached house, which means that one wall is shared with the neighbor in North Bondi and it's south facing on a really steep slide. Okay. South facing in Sydney means in Australia means in winter, not getting any sun. And it's, it seems like almost a no-brainer to my colleague and I, I'm working on this with someone, to carve a hole in the middle of that house to create an internal courtyard to be able to be a light trap, a northern light trap mm -hmm. for the main living space. Yeah. And that meant that there were some boxes we weren't ticking in terms of compliance. But on a merit assessment level, you say, well, does it, does it matter so much if this south-facing terrace in Bondi is getting over two hours actual sunlight, direct sunlight, in their main living space? And I don't need to necessarily go too much into that story, but council said, no, that's not appropriate. That shouldn't be approved. And so we've had to go to the next level of, um, of appeals for that project. Yeah. But this is what we're up against. We're trying to look at each site, each place, each client, each part of the world is unique you know that's the special thing about architecture i feel like i'm standing here in um, hamilton newcastle not bondi beach sydney yeah and what are those nuances that i can bring in and that comes with some breaches and that can be exhausting so that's for clients and for um architects um and that's another thing, a part of your back being up against the wall. So the exciting thing for me in that sense is that I'm submitting things and the clients are ready to say, I really like what you've done. I really like what we've developed so much that I'm ready to fight for it. You know, this person. That's cool. That you got a, you got a, like a posse, right? You're going up against the, it's like the, um, you know, it's kind of back to the comic thing. You've got like your A team going up against the establishment to get the project through. Yeah. Yeah. So <clears throat> when you have a big project on this, because some of the people listening will be doing, you know, when they think of leads, when they think of sales, it's lots smaller. Yeah. So when you've got a big project like this, that's going and taking a lot of your time, um, are you... Is that like for you, for you and how your practice works, is that the only focus, the main focus or one of a bunch of different things that you're juggling? How does your, I guess, flow of business work around something like this? Yeah, that's one of the great things I learned at those corporate practices. You know, because of the nature of the structure of the practice, people could delegate, you know, they had multiple arms. So the bosses invariably did the broad brush idea, touch base regularly with the project architects. Like you saw them, they did the rounds. Mm -hmm. Let's check in with Ruby today. Let's check in with Michael today. But a lot of their work was following leads and networking and we would meet regularly in teams to talk about how leads are going and all that kind of stuff. They didn't divulge heaps of information about it, 
But the other companies, particularly the last company I worked at, um, H&E uh, Architects, which was the last one I worked at before that made me redundant and led me on this path, because I was an associate, I was heavily involved in that side of the business. Heavily is an exaggeration, but I was involved. I'd go with the boss to talk about yeah. a potential Yeah, you knew what client. was in the pipeline. Yeah. yeah, and they would delegate what I would have to do because there's also a long time in architecture between someone calling you to say I'm thinking about something to them actually signing a fee agreement. Yeah. And unfortunately, that time frame could be collapsed and the project could be realized faster. Yeah. I could say to anyone out there that wants to do work to their property, if you're thinking about it, but you're not sure when you're going to start, just start because even when you get an approval from council, most councils give you five years before you physically have to break ground. Yeah. Anyway, back to your question. I got exposure to that and I got a feel for that. And as I say, like, you know, networking, marketing is a dirty word and that's not something that I do. But anyone who rings me or emails me about a potential lead or a potential situation, I jump on it really fast. It's not a huge undertaking to just call that person and say, talk to me. Um, whether it's a client, a colleague, anyone. And that's not a huge undertaking, as I say. Um, and you follow, follow it up. So I don't say... I mean, I think consciously everyone has their morning stretch routine, let's call it. Probably as a sporty physical person yourself, you'd appreciate that. I need, I need coffee in the morning, but I also need something to get the juices flowing and I can't just dive straight into wherever I was at with a big project. I like doing small tasks to then build momentum up to get to the bigger task. That's just my nature. And some of those small tasks are like, oh, did I call that person who asked me about that? Where was that at? Chase that up, organize a one-on-one, -on -one, a meeting. And it's not a huge task necessarily to follow that up. Um, not so regularly you come across as desperate, obviously, but just touch base. And I've, I've had so many leads that I've had to answer lots of questions, you know, because for better or worse, this is something I'm interested in in future projects. Um, I think there's a little bit of an enigma towards the architectural profession. You know, we, we, we love to be on Instagram showing the finished product in magazines, in presentations, walk us around that um, product. But I don't know, as a homeowner or someone who wants to develop, you're like, oh, that looks great. wonder what that person's like. Should we ring them? What should we do? How do you break through? And I don't know if for a client I'd be interested in this feedback from people if that's like scary as big as asking someone out on a date. Mm. And I like to really quickly just give a sense of comfort mm -hmm. and say it's not all going to be bells and whistles. It's not all going to be easy. But I'm here to – my job is to try and relieve some of that stress associated with that unknown. Mm -hmm. And I – Again, maybe this is a tiny bit cheesy, but I think it's possibly that superhero <laughs> exposure to just helping people through these tricky situations because they can be tricky over mm. budget. Council doesn't like something, having a fight with the builder. Um, but we're there to try and help that. And I love in those first conversations to really engage with that and talk through that and dispel any myths, answer as many questions as possible and then let it simmer mm -hmm. for more questions mm -hmm. And some of those clients don't get back to me. You know, there's one lead I have that I haven't spoken to in months, but mm -hmm. I followed it up after a month um, and just touched base. And they said, thank you for following it up. We're still thinking about it. So I won't say it's like 
something that through the course of the week I say have to follow up a lead but certainly when I get a gap between milestones I get a little bit of fatigue on one project or one task Mm -hmm. it's something I say I better look into this and I think the to plug creator club here a bit the win the week thing of like the tasks for this week and the gratitude for this week always every week I've got a touch base with so-and-so to see where they're at Mm -hmm. and that's that's how I do it. So you've got like the, obviously it's connected, but you basically got a business built on relationships. Absolutely. And then obviously your craft and the expertise and the work that you do, but almost the big front end of that is just maintaining, building, connecting, supporting people. And then 12 months later, 18 months later, they might, they might sign, they might move forward, but it can take that time. Yeah. They've all got friends. They all know people. You go to house parties and you talk to someone. Um, Everyone lives somewhere. Everyone probably has an idea of where they're living or where they're working and could it be better. Um, And they're they're out there. It it shocks me. I'd love to do a statistical analysis of this because I think someone told me that less than 10 or 5% of all homes in Australia are actually designed by architects. Wow. Like that's an extraordinary... I believe that, yeah. It's, but we're all relatively busy. And does that speak volumes to the fact as to how long it takes? So that's why we're busy. Or that there's actually so much out there that we're not seeing that's happening and not being built and maybe mm. not being realised. Um, but even surfing, you know, it's, it's a funny thing. Like... What's the opposite of imposter syndrome? Like if there's something to do with humility or wanting to be humble, like when I'm surfing and I'd surf with some great people, energetic people, and then they get to the topic of what do you do for a living? There's almost a part of me that um, worries about a potential, how do I say this without sounding obnoxious, that I might come across as a little bit elite in the context of surfing saying I'm an architect. Mm. And I say it with a bit of, oh, I'm an architect. <laughs> but then I'm, I'm still proud, but I sort of, you know, I, I don't like to scream it from the top of my lungs. But then we start talking about, yeah, I, they say, I've engaged in architects. And I say, oh, wow, what are you doing? And how did you find it? And it's not hard in circles to just talk to mm. these people where they're living, where they're working, about what you do, because it's so ubiquitous buildings and shells and Mm. places we live and and spaces everywhere it's not like you know some of our colleagues in creator club are doing you know fitness coaching and and lifestyle coaching and it's hard to walk down the street and say i wonder if that person living in that house would be interested in lifestyle coaching but if i and i know some architects that do that like in a real simplistic way i could say that house is for sale i can see it's run down dilapidated like you can't live there Mm. and it's in my area i could let a box drop hi and i've done this actually to one to a person who bought a project i got the da approved for i let a box dropped said hi i'm michael clark here's a capability document that capability document was so crucial for me at that time nothing came out of it but i could do that and so in that sense um it's harder to get people over the line potentially and it's harder for people to know how to contact you and talk to you but it's easy to spot or you can see the you can see the market need more clearly yeah yeah so it opens up for direct you could be very skilled at direct 
direct marketing, but really direct relationship building with those people who might have a need. Like even just going into a cafe and saying, wow, I love what you did with that wall. Mm. And they say, blah, blah, blah. And I said, oh, imagine if you did this, this and this. In as um, uh, sympathetic a way as possible, you're not there saying, oh, the wall's not great and I think you yeah. could have done more. But you could say, oh, I wonder if you thought about this. Like another time surfing, I was surfing with a guy I really like and I was asking him all these very direct questions about his seating capacity, his patron capacity, his, um, how, many, how much license he has, what his furniture's like. And they're all really um, direct questions on hospitality. And he, was, he answered them all. And then he said, do you work in hospitality? And I said, no, I'm an architect and I've done a lot of hospitality projects. And just it's as simple as that. Mm. Just coming, you know, someone once said to me, um, if you're interested, you're interesting. Yeah, I like that one. That's good. You know, like if you meet someone and you want to hear their story and you're interested in their story and then there's a reciprocity that they're also interested in your story, yeah. the exchange could be... It, what could set up is almost limitless yeah. and that's not really that hard no the i spoke to a woman uh last week who is an artist claire and she has a little space here in newcastle yeah and she said she put up she's only been going a couple of years so she's well really as recently as last year in the full professional capacity doing painting and selling them she put a couple up in her friend's own some salons and straight away people were either buying the work off the wall or getting her card and reaching out and saying, hey, can you do a commission? When, you, when the Bondi house is built, is that kind of thing what happens in architecture? Like people literally see the house and they'll find out who designed it and you'll get lead flow from the actual work just sitting there? I'd like to think so. My wife really said, get a big <laughs> sign to put on the front. and um, During the build phase. During the build, yeah. yeah. I did put up something that's a little bit bigger than an A4. Not massive, um, you know, I haven't had any branding done or graphic design done, but it's had my name done uh, there. And I've not got a call. Um, and going back to Zana, Zana's actually had a policy of not putting their name on their construction sites and they still got work. They still got a name. You know, I'd say in, in those days where Zana's were really busy, they got a name for getting tricky approvals through council, mm -hmm. particularly in Wallara Council because of their level of engagement and discernment um, to the council controls and, and the like. So that was word of mouth. Um, but the terrace where I've got the name on the front and the builder's got it 10 times bigger, <laughs> you can almost see from space, it's a terrace, right? So a lot of the, um, I guess, creative, interesting parts happen inside and to the rear of the property, yeah. which you can't necessarily see from the front. Um, but I still think there's merit in putting your name out there and seeing what, what sticks. But I think I'm only doing that just to see what happens. Mm. So that's not binary by mm. any stretch of the totally. imagination. And people can walk through the space. So you've got the, I guess it's like Claire's painting sits in your home. Yeah. So you've got the whatever yeah. traffic over the next yeah. 20 years. Yeah. yeah. Whereas they, 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 they don't have that. What, what is probably more beneficial is that it's built. And so I can start to put it out there in media 
you know, reach out to an architectural magazine. Houses Magazine, for example, is a really good magazine for residential clients mm-hmm. because it's sort of geared towards the language and the content is sort of reaching out to residential clients more than, say, Architecture Australia, which is more written for architects. Totally. Um, and then, you know, what else could it be? And could it be in a newspaper? Could it um, feature on something somehow, somewhere? Um, but those clients will have house parties. Those clients will have people over. Those clients will have dialogue with people, you know, the neighbour or someone else walking down the street. I find that I had a director at um, one company said that most of his leads, most of his connections came from a rapport, a rapport he developed with a builder. So it's actually more word of mouth and networking. Mm. You know, you do a good job, you finish a good job, and that's appreciated from everyone involved in the mm. job, the consultants, the client, and the contractor. Yeah. And that's going to feed yeah. other opportunities, more so than your name on the front, because sometimes the name on the front can also mean that the neighbor rings and says, I don't like your builder. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, that, you know, the pros and cons come with that level of advertising, but it's not as binary, that yeah. name on the front more work depending on where you are yeah um okay so what else is is there anything else coming up this year that you are either excited about or or undertaking or thinking about doing whether it's directly in the practice or projects or marketing we're talking about podcasts and that kind of stuff is there anything else going on yeah so um as well as being a sole practitioner i've taught forever at UNSW? At UNSW. Cool. Pretty much since I graduated. The year I graduated, in fact, even the year, yeah, the year I graduated, I was straight away teaching first year. Huh. <clears throat> I don't know. They just invited you back? Yeah, again, it's rapport, it's connections, it's yeah. energy, it's enthusiasm. And, and my mom was a principal. You know, I lived teaching. You know, we used to joke in my house, my sister's 12 years younger, we used to joke that there's sometimes it's almost good to get out of the house end of semester when Michael's working on a submission because it's stressful chaos. And then when that finishes, half yearly reports came out and my mum would analyse all the reports of all the teachers and mark them up and there were reports everywhere. And that was stressful for my mum. But uh, so go back to the the thing. I'm a teacher. I like teaching UNSW, teach at um, uh, University of Sydney I've taught. I also teach the registration course for architects. Yeah. And so teaching and communication and presentations has been something I've done for a long time, really enjoyed. I think it's, I couldn't be an actor, so I can be a presenter. <laughs> and um, podcasts in the last little while have been such a great resource for me. Mm. I, you know, you drive, I drive a lot to sites and site visits. And so I'm in the car and it's great to get the opportunity to learn, to educate mm. during that time. I think you can learn as, as much in your car if you set it up as an education hub, is probably a degree. <laughs> if you're careful about it, you know. Um, the only thing is if you're using the phone to give you directions yeah, and true. then you're listening to someone. But, yes, yeah, so I've really been excited by podcasts, your podcasts, and, like, I've listened to so many podcasts in recent times that there's been this topic um, that I've been interested in in architecture which is helpful for clients as much as it is for um, colleagues, and it's... I call it the three hows or the four hows of architecture. You know, there's so many people out there talking about design. You can find content about ideas and design. And I love design. I love ideas. I love talking about them. I love debating them. 
But what's missing that's really useful, I think, for a lot of practitioners is how did you get that approved through council? How did you do that? Mm. You know, because I, I look at similarities to what I did or what a colleague did and we didn't get there. Mm. So how did you get it approved? How did you find that client? How did you get that person? Where did you meet them? What was the backstory? Yeah, imagine this for the students graduating from your teaching as well, having that podcast. Yeah, and um, how did you work through budget issues without giving a number? Mm. You know, because that's the other thing I'd say to anyone out there that really wants to develop something. There's a misunderstanding through various media outlets, uh, various television shows, do-it-yourself television shows, that things are cheaper than they are. Mm. So you have to come with an expectation that, you know, developing in this state is is costly. So how did you work through the budget and how did you find a builder to build it resembling what you've um, designed? And that's not to take away from any, any builders. I, I love builders. I work really well with them. But um, they have to be prepared to be told, I know you normally do it like this. I know you normally finish a door detail or window junction or ceiling junction like this, but I actually want it like this. Can you achieve that? Think through it. Yes, I can. How exciting. Love those builders. Oh, I don't usually do it like that. No, that's a tricky situation. The collaboration process that has to occur to realise a great result in architecture is you know, massive. Someone once said to me that architecture is a, it's a career in compromise. It's the ultimate career in compromise. And you have to be prepared for that. It's not my home, you know, it's their home. And I, I'm only giving them some ideas for them to think about. And I love that they engage and say, I'm not sure about that. How does this work? And that's fantastic. And so I'm interested in doing this podcast and it's, it's real pipeline stuff, but bringing in architects, consultants, you really anyone who's been on a journey, clients, maybe even some designers and talk about just design of an element. Like you said, you talk about surfboard design. Let's talk about approvals in surfboard design or whatever. Mm. Like that's maybe a little bit left of field. I'll keep it to architecture for the short term. But bring those people in and have that dialogue and work through those things to disseminate more than just design, more than precedent study of wow, I really like that window treatment or the relationship to outside or how high that space is or that form. Mm. But how do you, like as a practitioner, especially a sole practitioner, where you can't have rigorous dialogue with people to work through some of these issues? Totally. What a great, well, I think, what a, what a great. Sounds asset. like what you're talking about is something that's got a lot of value for the audience, whereas the other one sounds like it would have a lot of value for the speaker to talk about the amazing detail that they did. Mm. Does that make sense? Like the value flip is very practical for what you were talking about for someone coming up or looking for solutions, whereas the other one kind of pops the ego of the creator or the designer who's talking about the amazing detail that they did. And I think our profession needs to have that level of celebration. Like, you yeah. know, I'm not... I'm saying architecture is the hardest degree or hardest profession in the world by any stretch of the imagination. I'm just saying that I, I sit down some weeks and go, you know, that's why I like this idea of the house. How did that get built? How is that there? And I'm not looking for gossip. I'm not looking for people to give away all their techniques. Like we both love Radiohead. When I was learning to play guitar and writing music, I... Um, I looked at a lot of Radiohead interviews. They're not great because they're quite a closed network. And I remember this interview in Guitar World where Radiohead said, um, 
we're not going to talk to you about our guitar setup, our amp setup, the you know tones and and features and i'm starting to lose um technical terms here andy from creator club would be recoiling <laughs> but either way they didn't want to give anything away this yeah. is not a how to become radiohead yeah. they liked the sound they found and they wanted to guard that i think any great musician could uh retrospectively um uh engineer what what they do they could say okay i think this is how radiohead did it but they deliberately didn't give some of that stuff away and so i think i don't want architects to feel like they're giving away something that has been paid for, that it's their intellectual property that was their journey that's through years of effort mm. for free necessarily. But I think we can all celebrate our achievements. Yeah, I get it. More about sharing the context which brings inspiration for the hero who's on the other side of a similar obstacle. It's yeah. like, oh, wow, like Michael did it this way. I'm not going to be able to apply that set of details anyway, but it's more celebrating your journey. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really cool. And also the concept of flipping some things. Like you talk about this a lot in Creator Club. Like when you come up to resistance or something that agitates or triggers you, you know, what's the best thing to do to punch through the wall or figure out a way to cut an opening in it? And, you know, I, one thing at uni I learned a lot because of the way architecture is trained are these like, inverted sentences you know inverted concepts like two that stuck to mind that i wanted to bring up here that stuck with me for years is like you for example say you can't draw you've also said you can't play instruments and all these other things and i keep wanting to give this quote from a long-term mentor uh, michael tawa dr michael tawa who taught at the university of new south wales taught me dear friend now based in canberra had a quote in this great essay called poesis and praxis and the quote was, um, the artist is not a special kind of person. Every person is a special kind of artist. And I was an 18-year-old and I heard that sentence and just lit, mm. you know, my mind. At, like, I don't think I'm a great pencil artist or as good as someone with this other technique. Mm. But I have my way of expressing something. Mm. It's almost Tolstoy-ish. Yeah. Yeah. I was talking to an osteopath uh, today. I was in the gym and trained today. He's a musician. And he's moving north to play music. And he had said to, to go become an artist. And I was like, oh, look, man, like I can't play music. But I, no matter what anyone says, I pretend that I'm an artist. And when they say otherwise, I just ignore them. <laughs> and I was trying to, say to, sh trying to show to him how I saw his osteopathy as art. The way he speaks to yeah. me as the client, the way he sets up his treatment room. He's got his guitar hanging on the wall, the way he speaks as a version of art to yeah. me, which was as applicable as the guitar, you know? Absolutely. What was the guy's name? I'm going to... Michael, Dr. Michael Tawa. If you, yeah, Michael Tawa. The essay, it's old now. It's from the 70s. He's got a lot of other great pieces, but it's... The artist is not a special kind of person. Every person is a special kind of artist. And I, you know, one of the things I love in my teaching is to try and pull confidence out of people. Like in architecture, you know, so much of we do is not our voice. Um, I struggled in first year with the concept of I put my art on the wall and sometimes they didn't ask me to present it. And I'm like, but it's not going to, it can't talk for itself. It can't mm -hmm. speak for itself. And to be honest, it wasn't as, as good as something I produced later years at university. So I actually needed me to stand in front of it. 
And the um, teacher said, um, your, your work needs to stand for itself. It needs to have the wow factor. Um, and so really good artists, really good architects, all these people, like you might talk to them and not great conversation necessarily. They're not comedic or whatever, but their work excites you. Like I, I've said this to you in Creative Club, I don't think I want to necessarily have a meal with Tom York mm. or drinks with Tom York. It strikes me as quite a, you know, a, an interesting offbeat, unhinged personality but to jam with him to play music with him wow and so some of these people that aren't as vocal say as me or whatever i don't like the idea that their art is so good their work is so good and they go into a practice particularly a corporate practice and their backs against the wall and everyone's pushing them down strong personalities builders consultants clients and some of my best students potentially are relegated to just being in the corner producing the same stuff for 10 years you know they're pigeonholed and I don't want that to be their fate. And so I want to instill in them that confidence to stand up as much as their work and speak out. And mm. it's the same with, with clients and all that kind of stuff. I want them to walk away and when we shake hands and say goodbye, that they feel like they've been on this journey because they've contributed with confidence mm. to everything that's happened. And they've spoken up to council and they've spoken up to Builder. They've spoken up to me. And like, it's ironic almost that I'm trying to instill in them a confidence to be able to talk back to their consultants. Some of them already come with that. But yeah, I love doing that to my students. And I, I think that you saying you're an artist, even though you don't play music is beautiful in that sense. You have an opinion on music, you love music, and you can probably say very articulate well, oh yeah, I, like about it, stuff. it doesn't bend me out of shape. I just it's more factual than yeah. anything. Like yeah. I've I've taken guitar lessons. I've you know, but I'm okay with it. Um, I look to other things, or I'll do funny things like that. Like I'll use dot drawings, or I'll do my way of, of art or whatever. And I live vicariously. Luckily, we surround ourselves with people like yourself, people like Claire, lots of so many amazing yeah. artists. So I make a point. I'll go. Like when your house is done, I'll go look at the house and I'll, yeah. you know, I'll go, I try to immerse in other people's work. As and your well. summary of Claire's work and your summary of my work might be actually more interesting, compelling and accessible to not to the people that didn't do that work. Like mm. if I write about my work versus how you write about that work, I think it's, it's still really interesting and compelling stuff because mm. you're a wordsmith and you're mm. a critical thinker. And so even though you didn't have a hand in it, I think your artistic um, integrity, vision, understanding of how things, you know, what compels you, what excites you, you can put words to that, which makes you an artist. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I, I first heard it from Seth Godin. I used to follow a lot of his stuff and it was, it was basically everyone's an artist. If you, if you will raise your hand, you can call yourself an artist. If you follow the mechanical cogs, in the wheel in front of you and the template and the tactic that everyone else is doing, then you're pushing a button basically. But if you take one little bit of courage and you infuse some of your story into your speaking, or you do something where there's a little bit of emotional risk, then you can call it your art and it could be serving. You know, I've had a Brownie on here. Who's a, who owns a cafe down the road. Dude's an artist. <laughs> like, He's an artist in his customer service, yeah. in the speed, yeah. uh, his social media. It's like, it's it's phenomenal. It's like a performance. Hmm. And he's got a huge community and a thriving business, hmm. you know. So 
um, I think it's a healthy thing for anyone, especially in small business, because it also means that marketing is no longer a job. It's an extension of your art. Hmm. Sales isn't a, a have to. It's a conversation that's an extension of your art. Hmm. And everything can become uh, immersive or part of you versus a, 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 a you know a job on a Friday or whatever. That's how I kind of think about it. Well, that's that's a lot. We've got a lot here. Um, <laughs> I've got some notes that I'm going to go back to and listen to. Is there anything else that you wanted to cover or talk about in terms of what's ahead or... Just, just two lessons learned from yep. someone who's been on this journey and other people that uh, might be interested in a journey or similar. I spoke about the idea of really asking yourself that question when you've got headspace and the blinkers are off of, did mm. I enjoy that year, that experience? Um, or did it just push me forward? This idea that this is just a stop gap on my way to something else and that stop gap becomes 10, 15 years. I think um, so many people, like we're not here for very long in the scheme of things. It'd be nice to come home and I do come home now Come home is a bad expression because I work from home, but you know what I mean. And say, what a day. Look at that. I can stand back from a drawing, a model or whatever I've made and say, if I give you a summary of my day, it's, it's if I'd have told myself as a kid, this is what I'd be doing. I'd be like, wow, what an achievement. But so that's one thing I, I, I ask everyone to just ask themselves that question, you know, when you've got that headspace. The second thing, though, is that treat um, every opportunity to present a project, what you do or similar, as if you were speaking about it for the first time and it was the first pitch. One of the terrible lessons I learned in final year university, I loved my graduation studio project. I was really proud of it. It was a musical space, very much inspired by Radiohead and several bands that I loved. And we won't get into that. I could give a whole podcast on that. But um, I... Uh, was told by my graduate uh, graduation tutor that because there were several people in the studio that had English as a second language and weren't great at articulating their overall design, that he asked them to just give a quick snippet summary and then he would ask leading questions to guide them through the project. Now, he said that of everyone, but I don't think he meant that of me and a couple of other friends that could describe their project a lot better. And I got up and I was almost arrogant like this is a formality I've done really well I'm just standing here in front of new faces that had never seen the project and I'm going to get up here and my tutor's going to say it's fantastic and that's the end of it um, I summarized it quite well and then I got up and true loyal to my tutor I said um, and now my tutor's going to ask leading questions and my tutor wasn't there <laughs> walked out of the presentation he'd gone to the bathroom or to have a coffee he said michael's here michael's got this he doesn't need me and i just had this out-of-body experience like whoa that's not what i was thinking i was a bit sleep deprived my friends were there trying to go wake up wake up and i was getting hammered i was getting criticized that was the, the the guest critics were saying i don't get it and what happens here and what's going on over there and and it, my mum was there, my auntie was there, my dad was there, all these guests were there to see Michael do this final performance, actually played guitar. And I just went, oh, I don't need to defend myself. I've already got here. This is a formality. 
And eventually something clicked and I went, oh, this isn't going well. I've got to do something about this. And I, I, I never brought it back. I never recovered. And it played a huge role. Like ironically, we were taught to have our work speak for itself. And I thought the work would speak for itself. And a guy who said he always wanted to present his stuff suddenly didn't. Mm. And the lesson learned is, you know, I became a little bit complacent. It's a bit like Radiohead played Creep so many times and they, they don't like the song particularly anymore. They've gone somewhere else. But they did still play it, especially in the 98 tour for OK Computer. And a lot of fans that came from that time frame and were actually a little bit more interested in that version of them than OK Computer um, really appreciated that. And they still played it properly. They still played it with energy. They still played it with tenacity, even though deep down all of them were like recoiling. And like it's like looking at a photo of yourself sometimes 30 years ago. It's like, what am I wearing? Um don't think like that. Just really give every shot, every summary, every description. Um, know your audience. Like don't give it an hour lecture because that's what you've done before. But give it the same level of authenticity, integrity and energy. Don't think, oh, this is just someone at a barbecue or I'm cleaning dishes with someone I've never met before. Like it's that if you're interested, you're interesting. Mm. And that was a shortfall and I learned a lesson and I didn't do as well as I should have. And if I had that moment again, I would have come up with you know, and done it a lot better. So that's one thing. Always approach things with energy, tenacity, care, enthusiasm. Treat them like a child, you know. Um, the second one is actually the same journey in the same year. Um, don't force a creative result. In, f in the final year of university, the first thing we had to do was what's called investigation workshop. We had to workshop an investigation. This is one thing, again, that I loved about the course. Up to that point, we were given a project, we were given a brief, we were given a scope. Here, Michael, design a house for someone in a wheelchair on this particular site. Here, Michael, design student accommodation for this capacity. Here, Michael, design an art gallery in the middle of the city. You know, we were given a project outline. So they told us what it needed to include and where it was and we did a response. In the first half of final year, you tell us what you think the project should be, where it should be, what should be in it. I was like, woof, woof, woof. and me being someone who wanted to really dive deep into the resolution of the outcome of the investigation, skipped a step, forced an outcome. You know, we're supposed to investigate a workshop. I, I didn't do any investigation. I told my tutor we're going to do a museum in this random site, an old army barracks. And he's like, yeah, but what's the investigation? What are you workshopping? What, what do you mean? It's, it's just here and this is it. And he said, yeah, but why? There was mm. no investigation. And I struggled with sort of suspending disbelief. It's a bit like going out into your own practice, just saying, okay, let's just um, absorb myself into the process. Let's just see what happens, see what sticks. Um, and I didn't. And I failed the first half of that semester. And that was huge for me because I'd been a student that got very, very high grades up to that point. And this was huge. It's a huge subject, huge credit point. And I remember going home that night, I played a lot of music back then. I was heavily into Radiohead. It was around the Kid A time frame, Amnesiac. Uh, I don't think Hail to the Thief had come out. No, Hail to the Thief was like 2004. So we're talking Amnesiac, Kid A, like when Radiohead went from more guitars to a lot of programming stuff, but I would play the music on guitars. And my friend said, why a museum? Why in a bunker? Why is that Michael Clark? You know, 
final year uni, the investigation workshop was an invite to say, Michael, this is your last chance to tell us what you think is a shortfall in society that architecture can respond to. Mm-hmm. Tell us, what do you think? You know, save the world, Spider-Man or whoever. And I, I said, oh, I've already saved it. It's going to be this. And then I went home that night where I failed and I had a great night with some friends and they just said, you know, why, why that? What about music? And it's just one word. I went, yeah, I love music. And I went home and I played till midnight, played various songs from OK Computer, which I love playing more on guitar than some Kid A songs. But even Kid A has some fantastic stuff. And it just dawned on me. It's like, this is what it has to be. Something to do with music in space, in place. And I have to investigate that. Don't know if it's an auditorium. Don't know if it's a concert hall. Don't care. Let's just talk about music in space and see what could happen. And so the the lesson learned is when someone gives you an opportunity for creative exploration, think about what you care about, what you're interested in, what you think should happen. Don't presuppose what you think everyone's looking for or Mm -hmm. what you think the answer is. That's Mm -hmm. naive and a massive, that was a problem for me. Mm -hmm. And if I had my time again, I would have loved to say, don't know what's going to come out of this. Let's just put this down, leave it over there, see what happens. Yeah. <clears throat> a lot of the, the great copywriting masters had a similar thing. Eugene Schwartz comes to mind and he, he was like, don't try, don't try to be creative. Uh, what his, his line was, I think it was, there's no such thing as creativity. There's just connectivity. Yeah. And it was basically the same thing. Copywriters would come in and they'd, try to be really creative and they would pop out garbage that was just what they thought that the Mm. thing should look like to be creative whatever and he was like look within look around connect connect things connect parts of yourself together see what that looks like and what pops up um which is you hear it you hear it a lot uh but you can forget that sometimes in the moment especially you know when you're moving quickly, it's like, mm. oh, what's, what would be creative here? And you've got deadlines and you've got bills. And yeah, yeah. You've got to park that as best you can and just say, okay, let's just, let's just revel in this, see what happens, yeah. see what unfolds. And I didn't at first and later I did. And I really, yeah, did such a deep dive into songs and the structure of songs as a potential idea for space and this fantastic documentary by Radiohead that you may have seen called Meeting People is Easy. It's, you know, it's not the easiest documentary to digest for people that might watch it because they like documentaries. You kind of got to like Radiohead. Mm. But there's some scenes from that movie um, that I thought, wow, imagine that happening in a space. One one scene in particular, I'll I'll be very quick, is that they're uh, rehearsing a song called Nasty Surprise. And the song structure is going throughout the snippet. Um, but they do this montage of people coming on and contributing to the song and then them disappearing. Like, for example, you see uh, Phil Selloway through the pulse of the song adds a guitar line and then he disappears. The cut disappears and then it cuts to Johnny Greenwood adding a piano line and then that disappears. Mm. And then it cuts to Tom York singing. And then he disappears, but the momentum keeps going. So I kind of thought to myself, is this this opportunity to see or experience music where one part of a song or one element of a song in rehearsal is highlighted above others and you're walking through a space, hearing the guitar line, 
above the drums and you walk a bit further in the space and you hear the drums and you walk a bit further in the space and you hear the melody, sorry, the vocals. And what, what if, just mm. throwing it out there, those people don't know each other, like it's anonymous. Mm. They're having this impromptu performance. Someone plugs in for a rehearsal and says, oh, I like that drum beat. I'm going to contribute to it. And you're walking through this space in mm. the city. Mm. And that became this thing that I added to that. And then if I just let go earlier you know, I could have dived into some really fun things like that mm. for a longer period because my time frame to explore was reduced yeah, because yeah. I'd lost half of the semester. Yeah. Well, glad you got that part anyway. Yeah. Well, Michael, that was that was amazing. Thank you so much. Uh, I think based on how you showed up on the podcast, you definitely need to dive in and do your own. <laughs> so maybe that's on the cards. Um, I know you're building or rebuilding website. Yeah, that's okay. definitely on the cards. Um, so do you have one up currently? Yeah, yeah. It's pretty quick put together, Squarespace. Okay. Well, I'll put your website and Instagram. Is there anything else that you would direct people to? Uh, no, no it, my website would have an email and my email and my content, my portfolio, my capability document is updated more regularly and rigorously. What's than- your URL? Uh, michaelclarkarchitects.com okay michaelclarkarchitects.com one word yeah 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 and on there is an email you can just email me and uh, yeah I'll get the latest and greatest stuff out there and architecture is so bespoke you know I can't I'd love on my website to have a frequently asked questions but the answers to those questions change every six months with legislation findings whatever so it's always best with any architect that you're seeking there's another fantastic architect in creator club called um natalie anyone that you're out there talking to you know really look at their work if you're excited by their work or you're interested in their work don't let that be the sum total you we're with you for so long so Mm. many years having such an influence on your world you've got to have a rapport and you can only find that through a conversation, whether it's physical or on the phone. So reach out and talk to them. Don't email them and say, how much do you cost? What's yeah, your fee proposal? Yeah, yeah. Slow it down. R- reach out. Yeah. yeah. Have a coffee, have a beer, have a surf, have a, I don't know, go to a comic circle thing. I've got a, a one client who's a big comic collector and sometimes our conversations go off topic and the wife gets a little bit, yeah. but yeah, reach out, have a conversation. Awesome. Well, thank you for today. Thank you. Thank you so much, John.